Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Chris, for bringing us our reading, for Maria and the worship group for leading us through. Are you going to tell us what a pot's herd is then, Chris? We talked about this at the Cafe Church yesterday. It's an old relic. A pot's herd is an old, dry relic. There you go, in case you were wondering. Those of you who um, come to this church on a regular basis will know that our theme from the, for the year has been building bridges, recognising, of course, that in the first place God has built a bridge to us through the person of the Lord Jesus, and we as God's people are called to then build bridges out into the community into which we live. Uh, these last few weeks, we've been thinking about building bridges over troubled waters, um, Inspired, of course, by that fantastic song by Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Waters. And we thought about some of the troubled waters that we go through in our own lives. Temptation, misunderstanding, anxiety, doubt, confrontation. And this morning, we're thinking about the troubled water of shame. All of the things we've been looking at have got one thing in common... And that is that we all have them in common. All of these things are not things that one or two of us experience from time to time. They're things that all of us experience on a regular basis. And that feeling of shame is no different. When I was preparing for this morning, a couple of weeks ago, I was on holiday with my sister-in-law. She's a mental health nurse And she does what she calls um, mental health first aid training in uh, corporate and educational settings. And when I explained the subject to her, she said, oh, yes, shame. And this was her professional opinion, not her opinion as a Christian so much. She said, unresolved issues relating to shame are the cause very often of dangerous and destructive behaviour. When we think about shame, we have to be very careful not to confuse shame with guilt. Guilt is based on what we know about what we have or haven't done. Shame is an emotion based on what we feel about ourselves. This is what the secular psychologist Brené Brown said. Based on my research and the research of others, I believe there is a profound difference between shame and guilt. I believe that guilt is adaptive and helpful. It's holding something we've done or failed to do up against our values and feeling psychological discomfort. I define shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. I don't believe shame is helpful or productive. In fact, I think shame is much more likely to be the source of destructive, hurtful behaviour than the solution or cure. I think the fear of disconnection can make us Dangerous. That is what a secular psychologist says about the difference between shame and guilt. But as Christians, as people who have embarked on a spiritual life, we can add another depth of understanding to that. 
as spiritual beings, we know that we are subject to two different voices in our lives. The voice of God and the voice of Satan. I wonder if you've ever seen that sort of cartoon image of a man who's got to make a moral decision and he's got an angel on one shoulder whispering and a devil on the other shoulder. You know, we laugh, but that's not so different from real life as a spiritual being. God speaks truth into our lives, even though sometimes it's truth we don't want to hear. Satan speaks lies. The book of Revelation talks about Satan. It says Satan is the accuser who of people who don't know God, of people who aren't Christians. No, it says Satan is the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them day and night before God. Satan loves to lead us into temptation. He loves to lead us into situations where we do the wrong thing. We do something we know God wouldn't approve of. And having done that, he then uses that to accuse us, to make us question our standing before God. Warren Wiersbe puts it like this. It is important that we distinguish between Satan's accusations and God's conviction. A feeling of guilt is a good thing if it comes from the Spirit of God. If we listen to the devil, it will lead to defeat, remorse and regret. The truth of God convicts us of wrongdoing, an error in our lives, and leads us to repentance and a closer relationship with God. The lies of Satan lead us to shame and despair and a feeling of defeat, and ultimately move us further away from God. Jesus says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Satan says, I'll tell you the truth about you, and you'll be a captive to it for the rest of your life. What about Psalm 22 that Chris read to us? Psalm 22 is a psalm of David. David was one of the heroes of the Old Testament. He was a great king. He was, humanly speaking, an ancestor of Jesus. That doesn't mean he wasn't subject to the same thoughts and emotions as the rest of us. But David is unique in scripture because, unlike most other Bible characters where we just have facts and figures and places and people recorded, David recorded in the Psalms his feelings, his emotions, and very often with a brutal and stark honesty. Psalm 22 is no exception. Psalm 22 is essentially a people story. If you come back tonight, we're going to be looking at the same subject. But Stephen Gillam is going to be speaking and he's going to be looking at a people story from the Gospel of John. Psalm 22 is a people story. The people involved are, of course, David, those around him, God, the Lord Jesus, and ultimately us. It's difficult as we read Psalm 22 and the accounts of David to pin down the events to any one episode in his life or a series of episodes. However, that doesn't mean we should overlook it and it doesn't mean we should give it a status it doesn't deserve. We should recognise this as a profoundly honest account 
of how David felt about what was happening in his life at that time. And there is one word, I believe, that describes David's emotions in this psalm. And that is the word we're looking at this morning. Shame. Shame that was both self-inflicted. Shame that was thrust upon him by those around him. Shame that was deep, uh, rooted in a deep sense of having failed and having been failed. But David does more than just talk about the shame he is feeling. He also reflects on the truth he knows about God. And somewhere between the honesty of what David feels and the truth that he knows about God, he exposes three lies. The three lies of shame. Three lies that Satan wants us to believe about ourselves, but God would have us set free from. The first lie is this, God doesn't like me. God doesn't like me. You know, I um, grew up as a teenager reading um, Adrian Plass. Anyone ever read Adrian Plass? Um, Maybe people of a certain age would know Adrian Plass more. Um, Not making any comment there, Maria. (laughs) Uh, Adrian Plass struggled tremendously in his earlier life, and he said the critical moment in his Christian walk when he discovered the truth, God is nice and he likes me. God is nice and he likes me. Satan would have us believe God doesn't like me. David opens up crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there he exposes a contradiction, or at least a conflict in his own mind. You see, this wasn't Someone talking who didn't know God, who'd never been in a relationship with God, who knew nothing of the gospel or the acceptance and forgiveness of God. David cries out, my God, you are my God. On you I have trusted. This is someone who was in a deep and profound relationship with God. And yet he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do you no longer like me? Why do you no longer listen to me? Why do you no longer approve of me? I know you're my God, and yet it feels like you're not interested in me anymore. Why are you so far from saving me? David could look back on his life and see all the amazing things God had done, the way God had raised him up and put him on the throne of Israel and had done amazing things through his life. And yet he says, why are you so far from saving me? This is the reality of someone who has known God at work in their life. And yet feels that God is being silent towards them. Feels that God isn't listening. Or even worse than that, feels that perhaps God is listening, but he has deemed him unworthy of an answer. What is the answer? Somehow in the midst of David's despair and the honesty about how he feels, He comes back to the truth, not what he feels about himself, but what he knows about God. Three times David rails out about how he feels about his life. Three times he can turn around and say, yet, 
yet. You know, sometimes in scripture, the smallest words are the most important words. The smallest words are the words on which life is turned upside down. David says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. Yet you, O Lord, be not far off from me. David contrasts what he feels about his life with what he knows about God. And you know, that might sound incredibly simplistic. You might be sitting there thinking, well, that's all very well for you to say. You don't know how I feel. This is a pattern that is repeated throughout scripture. Paul writes to the young pastor Timothy and says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Satan wants to speak deception into our lives. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Don't listen to the lies of what you feel. Listen to the truth of what you know. Paul in Romans 7, wrestle with his own sense of shame and uselessness before God. I find this law at work. I want to do good, but evil's right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the sin at work within me. What a wretched man am I! That's how Paul feels. Who will rescue me from this, sub, this body that is subject to death? Paul turns from what he feels to what he knows. Thanks be to God. Who delivers me from our Lord Jesus Christ? David turns from what he feels to what he knows. He says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted And you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. For the first time, David comes to the heart of the matter. He says, look, I've trusted in you and I perceive that in my trust in you, I've been put to shame. But I know, I've heard the stories, I've read the history of my people. Our ancestors trusted in you and they weren't put to shame. So I know I can trust in you and I won't be put to shame, even though right now it doesn't feel like that. Second lie of shame. Other people don't like me. Other people don't like me, perhaps because of what you've done or what you've not done what you failed to do, what you were incapable of doing, perhaps what you should have stopped and you didn't stop, perhaps because of what you should have done but you didn't. Once again, we're not quite sure exactly what David is talking about here, but the logic is not hard to follow. If God has forsaken David, well, maybe other people have too. 
I am a worm, he says, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. We don't quite know who the men, the people, all, they, that David talks about, are. David faced a lot of enemies as a warrior king of Israel. Maybe it was his enemies attacking and insulting him and mocking him. That might make sense on one level. Yet it would be an unusual military leader who wouldn't expect some sort of flack from his enemies. Perhaps it would be, uh, wouldn't do very well for him to be well thought of by his enemies. My gut instinct as I read this is that those who mock David, those who disdain him, those who hurl insults at him, are people that are very close to David. Those people who surround him. Perhaps his family, perhaps the royal court, military leaders, maybe the religious leaders of Israel. People on whom David ought to have been able to lean for support in his hour of crisis. Whoever they were, they were certainly well aware of David's faith and trust in God. They mock him by saying, oh, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him then. They knew about David's relationship with God and they mocked that relationship. And worse still in doing that, they not just mocked David, but they mocked the God in whom David had placed his trust. I wonder if you've ever had that sense of going to someone for support in your hour of need, only to find actually instead of support... Instead of being edified and built up, you get knocked flat. The people on whom you ought to be able to lean for support actually put you to shame as well. Maybe family members or work colleagues. I would guess in David's day, whatever David was talking about, it was probably religious, spiritual leaders. Tragically, sometimes even in church, people we go to for support we find knock us flat. It's a story of Hannah in the Old Testament. Hannah was a woman with a profound sense of shame, not because of anything she'd done or failed to do, but simply because she didn't have children. Her husband had another wife, as was the practice in those days, who had children, and the scriptures tell us she spared no effort in driving her to irritate her, provoking her to irritation. Her husband should have been a source of comfort. In fact, what he says to her is, why are you so downhearted? Why are you weeping? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? But he tried, I guess. She went to the temple to pray in her deep and profound distress. And there she wept. Bible says her mouth was moving But no words came out as she sought to bring her worries before the Lord. The high priest stops by, the man who ought to have been able to comfort her, to guide her, to counsel her, to steer her towards God. And he says, woman, you're drunk. 
Why have you come to the temple when you're drunk to pray? Shame heaped upon shame heaped upon shame. I said the lie is that other people don't like me. And you might well listen to that and say, well, clearly people didn't like David. And and there were some people that didn't like Hannah. So is it a lie? The lie, of course, is that no one likes me. Yes, there will be people who don't like you. There's always going to be people that don't like you. But the lie from Satan, the lie of shame says no one likes you because you're unworthy of love. Because you're not worth liking. Because you're not the sort of person that has friends, that has people that like or love them. Third lie of shame says, I'm not good enough. I failed where I should have succeeded. David starts off Psalm 22 convinced that God had rejected him. He is then convinced that those around him have rejected him. Finally, he rejects himself as a failure. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. This is strong, graphical stuff from David. Once again, it's hard for us to imagine which of David's enemies could have caused this suffering. But in some respects, it doesn't matter. This is how David felt about what was happening in his life. It was real enough to David. But maybe this helps us to understand why David felt that everyone else, including God, had rejected him. If you read the story of David, the books of Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, it's the story of battle after battle after battle. It's all good, bloodthirsty stuff. But maybe the reality was sinking into David. He was fighting battles that he shouldn't have to have fought. This is what Samuel says to David as he is crowned over king, the, the king of Israel. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock. I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will give you rest over your enemies. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood, I will establish his kingdom. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. That was God's promise to David as he was anointed king over Israel, God's people. And in the light of God's declared people, uh, purpose for David, 
in the great scheme of his plan for Israel and ultimately all mankind, in the light of his promise he would no longer be subject to attacks from his enemies and that the reign of the house of David would last forever and usher in a new era, you would have expected David to have been walking a mile high, to have felt like a man who was worth a million dollars. This was a man to whom God had promised an eternal line, rest from all his enemies, no more battles. And yet, as we read Psalm 22, this is not the psalm from a man with a sense of a hand of history on his life. This is a man who has been completely defeated by those from whom God said he would deliver him. God promised to rescue him from his enemies. And David writes not as a heroic conquering king, but as an abject failure. Those around him maybe had staked their own plans and purposes on David. Maybe those in his court, those in the military, those in the, uh, in the temple had their own agendas and purposes which all hinged on David being successful. And David had failed. Where God had promised him something, David saw those promises as having failed because of him. Reminds me of Elijah who stood alone against the wicked King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, alone in Israel as standing up for God's plans and purposes. And amazing things happened when God acted through Elijah. And yet one word from Queen Jezebel and Elijah, we're told, runs for his life. This is the man who just days before had seen God bring down fire from heaven and destroy the prophets of Baal. One man standing against hundreds of pagan prophets. One word from Queen Jezebel and Elijah runs for his life and says, I'm no better than my ancestors. God, take away my life. It is enough. The lie of Satan says, you have failed where you should have succeeded. But you know, our subject this morning is not the waters of shame, the troubled waters of shame. It is a bridge over the troubled waters of shame. David changes gear in Psalm 22 Having been so brutally honest about the way he feels, he now realises something, something very profound. He realises that his kingdom, his life, his throne, his bloodline is much bigger than he is. That God's plans and purposes for David and his kingdom and his people are much bigger than anything David is experiencing. And so David says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. The assembly would have referred to some sort of annual meeting of the great and the mighty in Israel. And I would like to bet that an awful lot of the people who roundly scorned and mocked David in verses 6 to 8 were there in the assembly. And David says to God, in sight of them, I will praise you. 
I'm not going to complain about the misery of my life, all the things I feel I failed at, all the things you feel I failed at. I am going to praise God. How could things change so dramatically for David? If you read a commentary on Psalm 22, you won't find very much that talks about David and what happened in David's life and the suffering of David. Most of them talk about the sufferings instead of Jesus. Peter, in his great sermon in Acts chapter 2, puts it like this. Fellow Israelites, I can confidently tell you the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here today. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. God could declare God's praises, uh, David rather could declare God's praises despite the suffering, despite the shame, despite what he was very obviously experiencing, because he knew that God's promises to him had a purpose. And that purpose reached far beyond his own experiences and his life sign. David says he is not despised by God. And furthermore, this will be the theme of my praise in the great assembly, in front of the people probably who had roundly condemned him as a failure. But, you know, David goes further than that. He says, uh, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly before those who fear you. I will fulfill my vows. It's not enough for David to say, God has not rejected me. I have not rejected. I have not failed God. I'm going to leave it up to God to decide whether I'm a success or a failure. David does more than that. He says, I will fulfill my vows. God raised David up for a purpose. God had a plan for David. And David had a part of that to play. David had to fulfill vows. And as king of Israel, he would have had quite specific vows to fill. We're not all in that situation. We're not all great leaders. But each of us here this morning have a part to play in God's plan. God has brought us here because he has a plan and a purpose for our lives. And we can either reject that and say, I'm not going to do anything about it. Or perhaps we can listen and say, lovely, marvellous, you've got a plan for my life. I'm not going to do anything about it, though. Or we can say, okay, God, you've got a plan for my life, and I'm going to live my life playing my part in that plan. What do you want me to do, God? And I'm going to do it. I'm going to fulfill my vows to you. It's what James calls being a doer of the word rather than a hearer of the word. It's not just enough to hear what God says to us. We've got to do it. Because maybe in becoming doers of the word we properly understand what God is saying to us. We can read about what happened to David. We can listen to the way David felt. Perhaps we can identify with an awful lot of what David said. Our exact situations will be varied, they'll be different. 
But from time to time, we all have that deep sense of shame. Maybe for some of us, it's something we wake up with every single morning. That deep sense of shame. I am unworthy of God's love. I am unworthy of anybody else's love. I failed where I should have succeeded. Those feelings were real enough for David. But David knows there is one who will come, who will make sense of what he felt, who will make sense of what we feel, who will make sense of what people across the world who Satan speaks lies into their life of will feel. David says, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. All people, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. The families of the nations will bow before him. How can this be so? Because David is now thinking centuries into the future, posterity will serve him. Future generations, that's us will be told about the Lord, they will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. And they will proclaim, he has done it. He has done it. The four words of truth that speak into the lies of shame. He has done it. Listen to the account In Matthew of the crucifixion, two rebels were crucified with him, one to his right and one to his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. They said, you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were with him heaped insults on him. The death from now, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land about three in the afternoon. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ever wondered why those words are recorded in Matthew in a different language? It's because Jesus was crying out in Hebrew. He would have normally spoken in Aramaic. But Jesus doesn't cry out in Aramaic from the cross. He cries out in Hebrew. The language in which Jesus and his contemporaries would have read and known and remembered the scriptures. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus declares from the cross, Psalm 22 is accomplished through me. The suffering that David went through, the suffering that millions of others have gone through, the sufferings that people in Dorchester Community Church in 21st century Dorchester, the shame that they would feel in part, I now feel in full. 
Things that David recorded in Psalm 22 were no doubt very real to him. There is no doubt that a lot of what he describes with the benefit of hindsight is actually a crucifixion, a form of execution that wouldn't come to Israel for many centuries. The sufferings of David that we might readily identify with, that sense of shame, were a mere indication of what Jesus would suffer on the cross. Abandoned by God, shamed, humiliated by the religious leaders of the day who should have been building him up, accused of blasphemy, seen as a failure, a man of sorrows, rejected by men and acquainted with grief. That bridge that we've been talking about, the bridge over the troubled waters of shame. It's not a pretty bridge. It's a narrow bridge, or at least it has a narrow entrance. The only way on to it is through the person of the Lord Jesus. It's made of rough-hewn wood. It's full of splinters, stained with blood. There's holes in it where the nails went. But you know that bridge over the choppy waters of shame is as long and as sturdy and as trustworthy as ever a bridge was. It's a bridge on which we can lay all our shame and sorrow. The lies that Satan would speak into our lives that tell us we're no good, we're rubbish, we failed, people don't like us, God doesn't like us. And on the other side of the bridge is the only solution to shame. Love, forgiveness and acceptance from a loving Heavenly Father who sent his son to die a shameful, lonely criminal's death. Abandoned by God, abandoned by his friends and all mankind. So that we can live the life God intended us to live. An abundant life and freedom from shame. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that no matter what we're going through, no matter what we feel about ourselves, we can always come before you and be honest about how we feel. We thank you that however shameful and dirty and despised and rejected we feel, we can come before you, our loving Heavenly Father, and you will always listen to us. And you won't reject us or despise us. But you welcome us with loving arms. The Father who always welcomes his children, no matter how bad those children feel about themselves. We thank you that 2,000 years ago you sent your son to die on the cross to become shame for us in that great divine transaction 
so that we can shed our filthy rags and instead put on royal robes. Royal robes we don't deserve, but royal robes that you love to dress us in, that we can stand before you in a righteousness that has been bought for us at great price. Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone this morning who is overwhelmed with a sense of shame. Help them to see it for the lies it is and to reject that and embrace the truth of a loving Heavenly Father who wants to build up and not knock down, who wants to embrace and not reject. Amen.